0: This is Robert Capuccio. Welcome to the Self Help Antidote, a weekly dose of reason, perspective, and insight, where we challenge conventional thinking and explore authentic strategies and insights around personal transformation. Our commitment to you is to bring you some of the world's leading experts in the domains of fitness, wellness, coaching, and behavior change, separating fact from fallacy. admittedly, I like to reminisce a little bit. Maybe I'm a hopeless romantic. I don't know. But I was recently thinking about an early part in my career, not early in my working life, but early in my career when I started becoming infected with the ideas that kind of shaped me and shaped my career and my life in a lot of respects. And I was thinking back to, I think, spring of 1996. And life was pretty good back then. As a matter of fact, you could arguably say it was better than good. I was in love. I was doing work that I loved. I was learning. I was growing. I was obsessed and passionate about the subject matter that I was immersing myself in. And on this particular day that I'm recalling, I was enjoying a beautiful drive on a gorgeous spring day down the Belt Parkway in Brooklyn. I know this sounds a little bit nauseating, uh, but you know it gets worse. So I was on my cassette player, and I was listening to a seminar. For those of you who don't know, back in the primitive ages of the 1990s, we had these square plastic things, and we would shove them into these devices, and sound would come out of them. And if you happen to be in love, just like I was at that time in my life, the ultimate romantic gesture that primitive people exchanged was called a mixed tape, and it was actually really cool. So yeah, where was I? Anyway, Let me get back to, I was listening to one of my favorite professional development speakers. I bought an audio recording of a live seminar. And if I'm going to be honest, I probably wasn't listening to it as consistently as I should have been, I was likely distracted uh, by the beautiful spring drive I was on. But I remember it was that particular day that something he said caught my attention because I was like, wow, this is fascinating. And he was sharing the story of a 20-year study conducted at Yale University from the years of 1953 to 1973. And back in 1953, the entire graduating class of Yale was asked if they not only had clearly defined goals, but clearly defined written goals and plans for their achievement once they left university. Now, what surprised me listening to this was that out of the entire graduating class of Yale, only 3% of them had clearly defined written goals and plans for how they were going to achieve these goals. Now, I remember thinking, that's a little bit odd. How do you invest in an Ivy League education and not have a clearly defined goal for whatever it is you want to do with your life once you leave that institution? You know, were 97% of the graduating class of Yale committed to investing what I would imagine is a small fortune, working diligently toward a degree, and then just I don't know, throwing caution to the wind and hoping for the best. And my favorite speaker goes on to explain that in 1973, Yale went back and interviewed the surviving members of the class of 1953 and discovered that the 3% who had clearly defined written goals and plans for their achievement were earning more than the other 97%. Now, you might be thinking, duh. Bobby, did you like forget to pay your brain bill this month? That makes perfect sense. If 97% didn't have a clue and 3% had a clue to find goals, well, they had a little bit of an advantage, didn't they? But it gets even more interesting than that. It's not that the 3% were earning more than the other 97%. They were earning more than the other 97% combined. Now, I didn't even wait till I got home that evening. I was so inspired that I literally drove straight to like one of these office supply stores. You know, it's called Staples. Doesn't really matter, but that was the name of the store. So I went into the store, purchased a notebook and a brand new pen, not just an ordinary pen, A beautiful pen, which I absolutely lost a short time after. Anyway, not part of the story. So I sat in a coffee shop for the next few hours, voraciously writing out my short-term and long-term goals and plans for their achievement. Because how can you receive an insight so powerful and not take immediate copious action, right? I, I thought, why doesn't everyone know about this study? And I went ahead and told a lot of people. So a short time later, I learned from another personal development guru that Harvard had done a similar eight-year study and found strikingly similar results. So in 1979, the graduating class of Harvard was interviewed, and again, only 3% of them had specific written goals and plans for their achievement. It seems to be something interesting about this 3%. That'll become obvious to you in just a little bit. Now, when they interviewed the class of 1979, eight years later, in 1987, the 3% that had specific, clearly defined written goals were earning on average 10 times more money than the other 97%. Now, this information was amazing, life-altering, mind-expanding, and it was affirming because they had duplicated it, and apparently, it was a complete absolute fabrication. This study never took place. So around this time, I mentioned that I was immersed in learning and development, not just self-help, but biomechanics, Neuroscience. I was immersed in neurophysiology, and I was just really excited about all things that can help me grow in my career and the things that interest me. So, one magazine publication that I subscribed to back then was Fast Company. And in the December 1996 edition, this is why I remembered 1996 there was a writer, Lawrence Tabak, who uncovered that both the Yale and the Harvard study were nothing more than an urban legend. And I remember reading this article and I felt this sinking feeling in my chest when I I read the words written by associate researcher, I believe her name was Beverly Walters. And she basically said that they were confident that the study never took place. And for me, that was unfathomable. I invested money and trust into these so-called quote-unquote personal development educators and I was betrayed. I know, very dramatic. But then you know, I started to reflect on the past six months or so and I thought about my three most important short-term goals on my list and I had already achieved two of them and the other one was well on its way to being achieved and I was only like half a year in. So, question is, was I really betrayed? And and I am not advocating that people spout research and talk about research that was never conducted or or cite a single isolated study as evidence of anything, especially without respect to the methodology and the impact factor or the, the quality of journal it's published in. That's not what I'm saying. But What I am saying is that I hardly found it in me to hold a grudge over this act of betrayal because this belief that I was operating on brought me more confidence than I had experienced up to that point in my life. And because just six months earlier, I adapted this belief that you can achieve extraordinary results if you could just get really clear on what you want, write it down, make a plan and then take consistent action. And no matter how many times you have to adapt that plan, because there are inevitable roadblocks along the way, but if you keep keeping on, you'll inevitably bring that plan to fruition. And that belief was based on completely false information, but wow, was it effective nevertheless. And I couldn't help thinking, what are the other beliefs that we hold in life that kind of lacks evidence, yet it has value to us because it's important to us. You know, what is belief? Belief is persevering in the absence of a guarantee, right? Or is that faith? But anyway, so likewise, I wonder what are some false beliefs that we have that help us? And what are some other false beliefs that we might have that are really destructive for us? So I I heard a speaker say something at another seminar. Yeah, I went to a lot of seminars during this period, and I actually love seminars, and I'm not apologetic about that. I love giving them, and I love attending them. But this particular speaker said, you know, beliefs, most of what we believe is a lie. And again, I remember thinking, is that even possible? But apparently, it is. I mean, for most of human history, we believed without a doubt that the world was flat. And that's despite the fact that Pythagoras proved it was round all the way back, or not round, but spherical, all the way back in the 6th century BC. And many years after that, explorers like Magellan, like, proved it again. What about the belief that the Earth was the center of the solar system and it was orbited by the sun? What about that one? We believe that one so strongly that Copernicus was afraid to have his works published until after his death because He feared persecution by the church, and rightfully so, because then later Galileo's findings cost him his freedom as he had to spend his last days pretty much blind under house arrest. Not that much dignity for a brilliant mind such as his. Now, imagine that, believing something, despite all evidence to the contrary. Stupid, primitive humans. I mean, I am so happy. We have evolved far past that in our modern age of reason. Nobody today would ever believe something that they couldn't substantiate with empirical evidence. (laughs) Okay, so apparently our mental maps are not always the territory. I've had a guest on this podcast a couple of times, Paul Taylor and we used to travel the world presenting together and I I get so much out of Paul every time I talk to him and here's something that he asked his students when I was in the back of the room and he said are your beliefs helpful and the point he was making is sometimes there's no absolute way to know if your beliefs are absolutely factual or if they're at least in part fictitious and perhaps a question we should be asking regarding what we believe is not necessarily, is it true or is it false? But, but if we go deeper, the more powerful question is, is it constructive or destructive? And a lot of people go through life overestimating their genius. I know not me, not you. We're really balanced, reasonable individuals. But do you know anyone like this? I mean, you know, sometimes this person has your surname and lives in your household. I'm not going to say anything. This is known as the Lake Womble effect. So like there was this film about these kids and they lived in an area called Lake Womble, you know, coincidentally, and they thought that they had this extraordinary talent in sport until they left their community and they started to play on a bigger stage and people from multiple other areas started to compete and they started to find out that, yeah, they were great in their town, but they weren't all that amazing, you know, once they opened themselves up to a much larger experiential pool. And I don't want to discount the fact that there are a lot of us that have far more brilliance than we believe to be true. Or has been expressed, or or we're willing to acknowledge, and and sometimes we believe things about ourselves that's not only fallacious, but at the very least, it's unhelpful. And, and what we believe is inherent in what Dr. Martin Seligman calls our explanatory style. And, and here's an example: Sometimes, and I have a propensity to do this. I don't know about you. We'll make a mistake that results in a setback, and a person who is demonstrating a destructive belief might say something like, oh, I'm so stupid. I always do this. Now think about that statement. It's personal because it's I or I'm. It's also global and permanent. Notice the word always. Whereas someone with no more intelligence, talent, skill, or ability might experience the same exact setback and that individual might say, whoa, wow, I wonder what happened. That was different. What caused that? So one person has something that is personal, global, and permanent and unchanging. And the more they say that, with the more emotion behind it, the more that becomes embedded as a belief system affecting behaviors in a way that's destructive. The other person's like, wow, I wonder what happened. What was different that time? And they start to notice distinctions between what happens when things go wrong versus when they're in a space where things go right and they learn. So that evaluation not only doesn't create a false and damaging belief system, but very often it allows them to create the distinctions that increased their capability over time. So, you, you know, if, if one, now let's, let's say both of these people are delusional and I'm not advocating for delusion in either direction, but just for argument's sake, let's say one person overestimates her ability. Let's call her Jane. The other person underestimates hers. Let's call her Susan. In this case, both Jane and Susan are operating on a lie. Yet One's probably going to be paralyzed by her belief and eventually stop trying to achieve anything. The other person, to avoid discouragement, right, Or, or this person's going to look for strategies that's going to produce an outcome that's congruent with her self-image, and it's more likely to, to, to give her the resolve to give it a go one more time every time she's pursuing a goal. Now, guess which one that is? And, and as a result, all things being equal, we have two people with the same ability but they end up living out a far different destiny. So if we're going to believe a lie, doesn't it make sense that we're going to believe in a lie that supports us rather than undermines us? Again, I'm not advocating for either, but I I, I think it's pretty important to take a look at the fact that our beliefs need to go challenged. Questioning. And having a healthy bit of skepticism on either side of the delusional aisle has some benefits. And I'm, I'm going to give you a five step process. It's called A, B, C, D, and E. And this is used a little bit in cognitive behavior therapy. And A stands for activating event. So, in other words, like when you have something that you react to with disappointment, it hurts. What are those activating events? Like, like, what are the situations that causes you to be reactive in a way that is not at all constructive? The second element is, what's the belief there? So, when you're like, oh, God, I, I always do this, what, what is it that you believe that drives that response and see is, what are the consequences? So, what happens and when I'm saying what happens, I'm taking a look at internally and externally. So how does that cause you to feel? What's your physiological mental state internally when you're reacting to an activating event and expressing that belief? And what happens externally? What behaviors do you engage in in the world that produces consequences that, well, you'd rather they didn't? And then the D component is disputed because the thing about global beliefs like this is they can't possibly be true. N- nothing happens all the time. You don't always screw something up. Like if you're like, oh, I did it again. I'm always late. Now, now, mind you, you might need to sort that shit out because it's annoying. You miss things and you piss people off because you don't demonstrate respect for their time. But if it's like I'm just so stupid, I'm always late for meetings. Are you always late for everything? Can you remember a single time when you weren't late? <laughs> you know, um, maybe it was by accident. I don't know. Like you had a tailwind on the plane, you weren't. Whatever. It doesn't always happen. I don't always make this bad food decision. What are the times when you didn't? And what were the distinctions? And E is empowerment. What belief, if you had instead, would be more constructive, would support you? And when things don't go exactly the way you wish they would, or when you don't behave in a way that you think you should, you would have a more constructive process that identifies what it is that you can do or modify or adapt moving forward that doesn't paralyze you, but it actually sets you up for greater success in the future. Rather than I'm so stupid. I always do this. I might as well just give up. And then you go back through that repetitive cycle. So is that helpful? So anyway, I just want to wrap this up. Just wanted to share a brief thought about beliefs that are constructive and beliefs that are not so constructive and sharing that insight that, you know, sometimes it's not a matter of, is this belief true or is it false, but is it constructive or destructive? And what effect is it having in my life and the people around me? And if what we conclude is it's not a highly constructive belief at the least, well, here's something that we could use, you know, to kind of help us challenge that belief. Once we identify what that limiting belief is and reconstruct a belief system that sets us up for success and learning and growth in the future. Now, here's another point that I want to make. Just because I say I select this belief. Well, I'm going to have this empowering belief that, you know, even when things don't go the way I wanted them to, I could always identify root causes, modify my approach, and as a result, set myself up for success in the future. Just because I say I have that belief does not mean it's internalized. and I actually believe that. So what do you do? What you do is you lean on behaviors. What would someone with that belief, like me, for example, what would they do on a behavioral level? So when this activating event happens, how would they respond? Or when I plan to do A, but B happens and it's disappointing, how would someone with my new empowering belief respond to this? Or how would the version of B that I'd like to become in the future that has this belief, how would he or she respond to this? That's a powerful question to ask. And it's almost like method acting. Where, you know, a lot of people think, wow, acting, that's about pretending. No, I, I think a lot of what actors learn how to do is how to not pretend and behave authentically within a situation. Anyway, so think about someone who went to school or got a university degree and became highly skilled on the job. You know, whatever you're good at now, odds are you sucked at it originally, Now, why would you persist in trying to do something if you suck at it? Because you had a vision of yourself in the future, a future version of you that does not exist yet, but you believed would, if you took the necessary actions and stuck with it, that would be capable of doing the things you wanted to do, that would have the skills that you really wanted to develop because it served the values that you held in the present and you knew to live in congruence with those values in the future, you had to become somebody different. Because you were attempting to do something that up until that point, you hadn't done before, whether that was sales, whether that was kinesiological assessments, doesn't matter. And if you're going to do something that you've never done before, you must become someone you have never been before. So you had this future vision of yourself, living this life in the future, and you started behaving like that person would behave. You started studying for the amount of hours that person would study. You started making decisions in congruence with the type of decisions that person who you're not now, but who you're becoming would make as if you were already that person. So all of us engage in some form of method acting, and that's one way. To, because what creeps in is, yeah, yeah, I, 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 I know I would believe that, but that's not me. I would take this action, but it's not me. No, it's not you now, but it's who you're capable of being. Gerda said, "Treat someone not as they are, but that as they ought to be, and then they will become what they are capable of." being, and you can use that same logic on yourself. Well, thank you for listening. If you're getting something out of these podcasts, out of my guests, and I hope you are, you know, give us a five-star rating, you know, write a review, subscribe, join the community, visit us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, PM me if you like, and just Give recommendations about what type of guests and what subject matter you'd like to explore in the future.